Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 at verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, that is, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. And then we turn to our reading from Acts, Acts chapter 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 
not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and says, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Um, It's a good time to turn up in church because we are just starting this motto series. 
Motto series are times when, not just on Sundays, but across the whole church family, in all our small groups, from the teenagers to the retired, all of us look at the same material in the Bible, which means all of us can be chatting about it to one another cross-generationally. I'm going to lead us in prayer before we dive into this fantastic first passage in Acts. Our Father in heaven, we pray for this morning and this term that you would be speaking to us loudly and clearly through this book of Acts and changing us through it as we listen. We pray you'd give us humble hearts to hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. But I want to start this morning's sermon with a question. You'll see it on the top of the handout if you want to follow along. Um, The question is this, and it's pretty blunt really. Is Jesus just an imaginary friend? Is Jesus just an imaginary friend? And can you be sure? I wonder if that question has ever occurred to you if you're a Christian. Maybe there have been flickers of doubt. Maybe they've been great big valleys, dark valleys of doubt. Maybe one or two of us are going through that at the moment. Is God actually there? Does he actually care? Is Jesus just my imaginary friend? I wonder if it occurs to our families, friends, colleagues who aren't Christians as they kind of watch on. Uh, Maybe someone's here this morning kind of looking in on what we're doing, the the songs about Jesus, the prayers to Jesus, the listening to Jesus in the Bible, all this kind of talk of a personal relationship with Jesus as a saviour and a king. I wonder if you're sitting thinking, is this all in their imaginations? Or is there something real here? If that is you, you're so welcome, genuinely, warmly welcome. I'd actually love to know what you do make of, of what we do here. This is the question put most simply, is Jesus an imaginary friend? But actually lots of the critiques of Christianity in our culture ask the same question with just more sophisticated terms. Um, So think of kind of strident, atheistic materialism. The view saying if you can't see it or empirically measure it, well, it doesn't exist or it can't be known. So therefore, if you talk about an invisible Jesus or a spiritual realm, well, that must be fairies in the bottom of the garden kind of stuff. An imaginary friend. There's the psychological critique. Uh, Christian faith, like other religious belief, it's a kind of wish fulfillment. We just want something to be true or a kind of emotional projection. It's It's a crutch. It's an exercise in just creating meaning for ourselves. After all, that's what humans do. We have big ideas. We're meaning makers. And we've imagined a God. You get the same kind of thing, actually, from, uh, from those who might read the Bible as man's thoughts about God rather than God's words to us. That might come from a comparative religion perspective or a liberal theology perspective. It's just the suggestion that the writers of Scripture are expressing their own culturally conditioned, creative insights into the mystery of the divine. But they don't really know. God's not really speaking, or in blunt terms, there's a lot of imaginary friend in what they say. We know better now. So this is a hugely important question. It comes to us from all sorts of directions. And if we lose our confidence here that Jesus is really there, 
Well, I think joy is the first thing to go in the Christian life, and then pretty soon private obedience goes. Why bother if no one's watching? And then public witness will go. Why bother when everyone's watching? And this is where Luke comes in. So Luke wrote both Luke's Gospel and Acts to give us real certainty about Jesus, real confidence in him, clarity about who he is, what he's done, what he's continuing to do. And Luke thinks it's just cold, hard fact. He thinks it's reality, space-time history. And so our first point and the kind of introductory to the book as a whole is this. Luke Acts was carefully researched to give us certainty about Jesus. See, Luke is convinced that Jesus was not, is not an imaginary friend, not a product of human imaginations, and he wants us to be clear on this too. Now, I'm not going to go into huge detail on the connection with Luke and Acts. Sam spoke on that last week, um, but just to say, right at the start of the Luke, our first reading, he explains his method, careful research, interviewing eyewitnesses, and he explains his purpose so that you may be certain. And Acts is just picking up where Luke left off. So turn back, if you've closed it, to the start of Acts, page 909. And I'll read Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. The first book is Luke's Gospel, and Luke is saying this book just picks up the story with the same subject, Jesus. Do you notice that? Look again at verse 1. Luke's Gospel covered what Jesus began to do and teach, and so the implication act is going to carry on focusing on Jesus, but what he continues to do and teach. But notice we're now in a different time frame. That's what verse 2 is about. So Luke was covering until the day when Jesus was taken up. So Acts is, is what Jesus continues to do after he's taken up. That is, after he's ascended back to the right hand of God the Father. Or in simple terms, Acts covers the period when Jesus is invisible to the naked eye. That's why at the very end of Luke, our second reading, you hear Jesus ascending, going back to the Father. And the start of Acts, did you notice it? Luke kind of rewinds the tape slightly so that they overlap, so you know it's the same story. Verse 9, we see Jesus again being lifted up, a cloud taking him out of the disciples' sights. So I'm going to put that on the screen. That is the position that Jesus has in the entire book of Acts, apart from the first 10 verses the ascended king. Incidentally, it's also the answer to, if you ever get asked, okay, so Jesus rose from the dead. If he's alive, where is he? Why can't I see him? Well, here's the answer. It's not because he's an imaginary friend. It's because he's an ascended king in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And so Acts continues the story about him I think discovering from verse 1 that Acts is about Jesus can be a bit of a surprise to us. I don't know if you know the book at all, if you've dipped in. I don't know who you would have thought the main character, the kind of major player in Acts is. Easy to think it's the early church, or the apostles maybe, Acts of the Apostles, or, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit, 
or the Word of God drives the action on, but actually, all of those play an important role because King Jesus is on the throne. He chooses the apostles. He pours out the Spirit. He saves people to build a church. As we read through these early chapters, we'll keep hearing preachers giving sermons And they'll keep talking about Jesus, reminding us it's him. It's him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's actually still working, active, reigning, far from imaginary. And so this term and Acts should be helping us grow in real confidence. The one who was promised for hundreds of years was witnessed by hundreds of people, not just when he walked around, but actually, even when he was ruling in heaven. In fact, there are signs that Jesus is reigning that we can still see today with our eyes, but we'll get onto that later. So there's point one. This is what Luke Acts is doing. It's careful research to give us certainty about Jesus. And we really do need that. Real Christians wobble. Some Christians wobble sometimes. Some Christians wobble often. It can come from all sorts of directions. Challenging circumstances we're going through personally. Spiritual attack is a real thing. Struggling to answer particular questions that are thrown at us. It could be just feeling weary at always being the odd ones out. Real Christians find themselves wobbling. Wondering, is this definitely real? Is Jesus definitely there? Dr. Luke says, yes. I checked the facts. I went round and checked for you. This is a carefully compiled history. And as he goes round, you'll see on the handout, there are two, I think, big sources he keeps turning to. There is the fact that Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled. I don't know if you heard that in our first two readings. Uh, Luke writes of, of what was accomplished or fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's just the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. So as we read through this term, look out for fulfillment language. For times when a particular promise is pulled out of the Old Testament and we're told this is happening right now in front of our eyes. That's one reason we can be certain about Jesus. But the second line of evidence is the apostles themselves didn't just know the promises of the past, they witnessed proof in the present. In our second reading, they touched Jesus, saw him, heard him, ate with him. Or as our reading puts it, just have a look at verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them, these chosen witnesses, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for, during 40 days. These men actually saw Jesus face to face. And we're going to hear lots of them preaching about him, pointing to the evidence. So that's point one. Luke Acts was carefully researched to give us certainty about Jesus. And so as we go through these um, small group notes, you'll, you'll see that Every week in the kind of summary opportunity, we'll be asking, what does this particular chapter chapter give us certainty about? If this book is written so that we may be certain, 
what does this bit tell us we can be certain about? And as elders, we are really hoping and praying that this book as a church will grow us in confidence. Grow us so much in confidence that we can start more and more to be looking outward with the wonderful news of Jesus. And that will get us to our second point. King Jesus is going to tell us what the plan is until he returns. And it is a plan that looks outwards. But actually, just before we do that, to give you a momentary brain break, um, let me tell you, I've been doing some informal research on imaginary friends. Um, this, this all actually started because my, my daughter Grace made up one, um, which is fascinating to me a few weeks ago. Uh, she made up her imaginary friend, Ben. I think Ben must have been quite boring, because within two days, a new friend had been imagined alongside him. So now we've got Ben and Frida as a double act. Asking around um, parents, that it seems that this is quite common, kind of one or more multiple uh, imaginary friends. But here's something I've learned about imaginary friends. Um, the really convenient thing about them is that you can tell them exactly what to do. So I watch... Uh, listen to Grace playing with Ben and Frida, and it turns out they always want to play the game she likes obsessively at the moment. Apparently Candyland is something they can't get bored of. It's actually a key tip on telling the difference between an imaginary friend or a real person. Telltale sign is you can tell an imaginary friend to do whatever you want. They'll comply. But real people have their own agenda. Ben and Frida never think it's bedtime. Real people like us parents sometimes say it is. If Grace wants to change the activity, change the rules, well, fine. They'll imaginatively immediately buy in. And do you know, some people treat Jesus like that. Which, if he's just a product of human imagination, absolutely fine. I mean, we can expect him, him to get on board with our agenda, but... Actually, if he's real, he might have an agenda of his own. So which is it? As culture changes, priorities change, preferences, values, the causes we care about change? Or is it no problem because liquid Jesus, imaginary Jesus, can just be morphed to fit with us? Or if Jesus is actually a real person, a real person with authority, a person in charge... Does he have an agenda which might actually be fixed? Luke says, and this is our second point, in verses 4 to 11, King Jesus has told us exactly what his plan is until he returns. And Luke wants us to be absolutely certain this is the plan. He's real. He's the real king. And he's told us what he's about. We can't just imaginatively magic him into a different agenda. So let's dive in. Let's have a look at verse 6. Um, the apostles actually have a slightly different agenda for Jesus. Verse 6, they're asking, Lord, will you restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? It's not a terrible question. I think they're basing that on Old Testament prophecies, thinking, surely now we've got the Messiah, the King, surely now God is going to bring all of the blessings, all the promised blessings into uh, Israel, here and now, physical, Jerusalem-centered blessing. And there are still people today, well-meaning people, looking at Old Testament promises and saying, surely that's the agenda right now. 
But look at how Jesus, King Jesus, responds to the question. Verse 7. Firstly, the time frame. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Actually, when God the Father ends human history, that final consummation of his kingdom, that's his business, not ours. But secondly, verse 8. Actually, the plan, the agenda right now is not focused in on Israel and Jerusalem, but focused out from there. Just look at it, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We cannot underestimate how important that verse is in Acts, in the Bible, in church history, in human history. This is the plan of King Jesus, the plan he announced before he left. And we'll see that this provides the structure of Acts. So if you look at the screen for a moment, um, Acts is the story of this kind of inevitable expansion of the gospel. There are ever-increasing circles of witness to Jesus. It begins in Jerusalem, it moves to Judea and Samaria, and then out from the land of Israel to the nations from chapter 13 onwards. And we're going to see that that structures the book. But of course, it doesn't just structure the book. If Jesus is more than an imaginary friend, if he's actually the ruling king, it structures the universe, churches, our lives. If you're a skeptic here, if you still think he is imaginary, well, have a look at the world you live in and think whether that plan has been happening. It's an extraordinary thing, actually, that Christianity went global, given the odds it started with. Kind of 11 scared disciples. Uh, one had already abandoned ship. They were facing a hostility of a city that had successfully crucified their leader, who apparently rose from the dead, but then he disappeared. And both Jewish leaders and Roman authorities were against them. It was against all the odds that this would spread. And yet King Jesus, because he's actually real, made it happen. In fact, this verse 8 isn't actually a command. I wonder if you noticed that. He doesn't say, you, you must be my witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But we need to just pause on verse 8 for a moment and, and think about it in a bit more detail. We need to think, who is Jesus talking to here? That's one of the questions we'll get to discuss in our small groups. Who is the you actually referring to in verse 8? And we need to be careful. Uh, Acts is a narrative, it's a story. And there's always a danger with Bible stories that we just read ourselves straight into the story. There's a you, oh, that must be referring to me. Actually, we need to ask, well, hang on, who is being spoken to? And is this an extraordinary event or a normal event? Is it something unique in history? Or is it a pattern that's going to carry on going all the way to us? And it will depend on the particular episode in Acts, what the answer to that is. So here, Jesus, hear me closely, Jesus is specifically talking to the apostles just look at it. Verse 2, they're the ones he'd chosen and is giving commands to. 
Verse 3, they're the ones he's proved himself to when he was resurrected. Verse 4, they're the them he ordered not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Spirit. And they're the ones asking the question in verse 6. And to them, he says, you will be my witnesses. And we'll see Peter beginning that work next week. So he's, he's saying to the apostles, you'll be my witnesses. So on the diagram up there, I've got a box of everyday Christians with the apostles. But actually, should it be there? Are we involved in taking this message to the end of the earth? Well, yes, by the time Acts is through, that is clearly the answer. Partly because the message has to go to the ends of the earth. Now, the apostles uh, began the, the spreading process uh, significantly. Actually, the only way for it to reach the ends of the earth, places like Scotland, is if other people begin to take it. How's the good news of King Jesus going to get to southwest Edinburgh today, for example? Well, the apostles are now dead. So only if men and women, young people those perhaps joining the Redeemer Church plant, other Christians already in the area, if they share the message that these apostles witnessed, likewise, who's going to spread it around Morningside or our networks? Or if we take their message out. Do you see that? So they're the chosen official eyewitnesses. They're the spokespeople, the official witnesses. But all of us are involved in spreading that message around. At which point, I wonder if some here are getting a feeling of rising dread <laughs> in our hearts. Hang on, are you saying we're all supposed to be involved in speaking about Jesus? Are you talking about evangelism? Hang on, is that what this motto series is going to be about? If that's the focus, maybe I should skip small group for a few weeks. Come back when we're talking about something less scary. Because we find it difficult, don't we? I mean, yesterday we had an elders' conference in the morning and we were discussing some of the fears that hold us back from speaking about Jesus ourselves. But please don't skip Sundays or small groups because I actually have two really good pieces of news from Acts. Two massively encouraging pieces of news. The first is this. Acts was not written to beat us up. It's written to help us. And the way Acts helps us is growing our confidence in the reality and unstoppability of King Jesus and his message. Jesus just is spreading this message around the world. And it's a true, necessary, wonderful message. This book doesn't just keep saying, you must speak, you must speak, you must speak the message. It keeps saying, the message can't be stopped. The message is amazing. The message is true. At which point as we believe that and trust it, we'll want to get on board. That's the first piece of good news. The second piece of good news, which has been the piece of good news for me, is that the first great preacher of this book is Peter. Peter the coward. Peter, who at the end of Luke had an absolute evangelistic nightmare. Do you remember he was in a, in a courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, um, oh, this man also was with Jesus. And he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. He gets a second chance. A little later, someone else came up to him and said, you also were one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, here's your third chance, Peter. Take the opportunity 
Certainly, this man also was with him. He too is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation like that or been tempted to participate or not participate in a conversation that way, tempted to duck it when there's an opportunity to speak about Jesus publicly. I would expect every one of us has felt the temptation. It's probably given in sometimes. And yet in Acts 2, the same Peter is going to stand up in the same city and speak to thousands about Jesus with confidence, knowing that he's going to get in trouble. He tells them off. He says they're guilty, that they need forgiveness. It's just the most extraordinary change. And we'll see it with the other disciples too. So, so what happened, Peter? Well, like, how, did you, how did you go from A to B? Because I feel like I'm in A and I want to be in B. How did it happen? What happened? Did you, did you pull your socks up and just do it? Did you get an accountability partner who was going to check up on you after Pentecost? Did you, did you plan a new strategy for evangelism? Did you go on a training course? Well, those things are useful. No doubt Jesus had, had taught them, shown them proofs. But actually, verse 8 makes it very clear what makes the difference. Verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Actually, verse 4 says the same thing even more strongly. Look at this. The expansion plan, it's not even allowed to start until Jesus pours out his Spirit. Verse 4. While staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Peter turned from a coward to a witness because Jesus in Acts 2 pours out his spirit on his people. God the Holy Spirit moves in to embolden the witness of these first apostles and, as we read on in the book, actually all Christians, all who trust their message. The evangelists we're going to see and admire as we go through our acts, they're not superhumans. Quite the opposite. They're weak humanity like us made to speak of Jesus through the power of his spirit. And so again, my hope and prayer, this term is that we would be filled with boldness. Anyone who trusts Jesus has the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, of love, of self-control, and I'm praying, and I hope we'll all be praying in our small groups, that we would be filled with power to witness to Christ. That's point two. Jesus has told us what the plan is. This apostolic witness about him going everywhere by the Spirit's power. At which point, surely, this would be a great point to stop and say the very next episode we're going to have is Pentecost, when Jesus does pour out the Spirit with power. Surely, Luke, that's the next thing you're going to say. But actually, verses 12 to 26 kind of are stuck in the middle Chapter 2, we will get on to the Spirit being poured out. But we've got verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1. More than half the chapter, actually. And papyrus is expensive back then, so don't think this is just filler to kind of build up the tension. No, there is a, a third thing Luke wants us to notice. We'll only look at it briefly, but it is actually important. He double underlines how these chosen witnesses, the apostles, really matter Verses 12 to 26 is all about the apostles. So in verse 13, they're named, all 11 of them. We don't get the names of others like Jesus' brothers in verse 14, but they're all named. You need to know who they are. 
then verse 15 onwards, the discussion is all about, well, what do we do about the Judas problem? We might think that's not important, just internal kind of organization politics. But actually, there are really strict criteria for who the 12th person can be. Have a look at it in verse 21, where Peter explains. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The job of the apostle is to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. We already know that from verse 8 or from Luke. But the other thing is, the witnesses have to be chosen by Jesus. Remember verse 2? The apostles whom he'd chosen. And so that's why they cast lots. This is not a kind of pattern for how we make church decisions or how we recruit people to be our associates training here at church. It's actually the last time that lots are cast in the New Testament. But the point is, this has to be someone who Jesus has chosen. So just read with me um, from verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, speaking to Jesus, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Verse 26, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. See, here's the thing. If you're going to have a global publicity campaign, if the message is going to be sent out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, we need to be certain what the real message is. Do you see that? You see, as good news comes into contact with person after person, with culture after culture, there's going to be enormous pressure on it to change it, to soften it, to tweak the bits that challenge whatever time and place it reaches. We'll see, even within Acts, there's, there's always threats from the kind of different social, political environments that the message is in. And so it would be all too easy for there to end up being lots of different versions of Jesus, you know, reimagined for different places and times. Look around, and that's the culture we live in, but how do you check which is the authentic one? Where do you go for the authoritative witness? Well, Acts 1 makes absolutely clear Jesus chose these apostles to be the witness. It's why we trust the Bible uh, containing the apostolic testimony. The Old Testament promises and the, the witness of the apostles, that is the real Jesus. And do you know, ironically enough, that approach of tweaking the message, depending on where it's going, that's what leads you to an imaginary friend, an imaginary Jesus, not the real king. And so if we don't stick with this message, if this isn't the message we, we share with our friends and family, well, then we really are wasting our time on a fairy tale. But if we do, if we ourselves are trusting this message, if we ourselves are sharing this message, well, King Jesus is behind it. This is what he is doing until he comes back by his powerful Holy Spirit. And I know today is just introductory, it's just whetting our appetite, it's just saying what we will learn rather than really showing us what we have learned, but I am hoping and praying that we will grow hugely in confidence that King Jesus is taking his gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's a privilege 
to be involved in that. Let me pray as we close. Father, as we think of those 11 and then 12 chosen apostles, hearing your commission that this message would go to every nation and then seeing you disappear into the cloud, we, we think how hard it must have been to trust that back then. And so we thank and praise you for the privilege of living at our time in human history where we have seen the gospel spread by your power. And we pray from that and from this series in Acts that you would be building our confidence. And even more than that, please be strengthening us with the power of your spirit to share this wonderful message with those around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.